Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is episode 60 of Generation Jihad. Today, I'm going to introduce my friend and colleague at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Dr. Jonathan Shanzer. He's a senior vice president for research at FDD and author of the recent book, Gaza Conflict 2021. Say hello to everyone, John. Hey, Bill. Hey, everyone. <laughs> uh, John, before we uh, get started and today, um, we're going to we're going to be talking about Iran, its proxies, the status of the nuclear talks um, and, you know, sanctions, things of that nature. Um, before we get started, I want to uh, tell uh, everyone a quick story. Uh, my first meeting with uh, with John Shanzer and Mark Dubowitz, um, this was, what, May 2010, when they recruited me to join Foundation for Defense of Democracy. Um, I live in southern New Jersey, but my family's from South Philadelphia. John is a Philadelphia area, area native as, as well. And I, if, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, John, but you, got, you and Mark were going to be in Philly. And Mark wanted to get cheesesteaks, right? So we had to go down to, to South Philly and, and go to not just Pat's or Geno's. We had to go to both Pat's and Geno's. Well, just just to be clear, if you're going to go to one, you got to go to the other. And if you're with someone else, you just cut your cheesesteak in half at each place. And you can you know settle that age-old debate of which one's better. You can try. And it was at that moment, I don't really think it was a hard sell for you guys at that moment. I was like, wow, these guys understand Philadelphia. Um, and let's do this. And I've been a fellow at FDD now. It's coming up on 12 years. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for supporting my work. And thank you for John for being a great friend and a great colleague over these years. Ah, it's my pleasure. Long War is just a great product and it's, uh, consistently put out tremendous. Uh, research, and I think it's been invaluable to um, the analytical community. By the way, I'll just note that as long as we're telling Philly stories, that uh, Mark and I came back and invited Bill to a, a Flyers game. Uh, we had these beautiful seats. I mean, they were, I, I want to say it was probably three or four rows behind um, the visiting goalie first and third period. So you could watch the Flyers on, you know, offensive rushes and everything. And Mark Dubowitz is Canadian or Canadian born, and he um, was cheering for the other team. I, I want to say Capitals. It was it the Caps? Caps? Okay. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I was going to say it might have been the Leafs because I know at, at some point he was more of a Leafs fan. But at any rate, he's cheering when the other team scores. And if you know Philadelphia, the sports fans don't take kindly to that. And Mark was, I would say, maybe a minute or two from uh, getting getting smacked around a little bit by a couple of angry, potentially inebriated fans. And um, that was when Bill stepped in, made his presence felt, and kind of snarled at these other Philly fans. He said, look, I don't agree with them either, but you got to stand down. And um, I think it's at that point that Mark realized how valuable Bill was to the organization. Yeah, I'll take that. Um, yeah, no one messes with my company, uh, John, I think, as you know, um, that's uh, you're going to uh, look. I've gone to football games, Eagles games with Cowboys fans wearing Cowboy jerseys. So um, I've survived uh, this long. Uh, I'm not going to do that ever again. 
Um, but if you could do that in the 700 level in Philadelphia, you can, you, you, I think you, you know, I think that's what the reason why I was kind of comfortable doing embeds with the U S military in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Um, uh, I probably, you're, you're trained. In yeah. Fire. I, 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 was, I was born in fire. So, uh, you know, well, I'm just going to say episode 61 could be on just the dangers of being a Philly. Sportsman, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you want it. I'll come back. Yeah, I think I think that is uh, definitely you know borderline terrorism at certain points, but uh, um, no, but that's my kid. My kid thinks so. <laughs> by the way, just being a Philly fan, at one point uh, during the pandemic, after the Eagles were terrible, he looked at me. He's like, "Dad, why do you keep doing this to me?" Um, as if he's enduring a, a horrendous hardship. So yeah, yeah, it's we we um, we bear our crosses as Philly fans, but get and get the occasional once in a decade or so championship. Um, well, look, let's uh, let's get to it, John. Um, so Iran is back in the news. The Biden administration is trying to renegotiate a nuclear deal with Iran. Are they going to revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or JCPOA, as it's called? Or is it going to be JCPOA light? Uh, or is it, or is it going to be something else? Um, so John, what is the current status of, of, of the Biden administration's talks with Iran? Um, do we think it's going to be a full revival, a partial revival, or is this going to be something else? So I, yeah, I think we don't know. Um, what we can say is maybe it's probably helpful just to review the facts for just a quick second. In 2013, the United States announces an interim deal where we start throwing, um, fairly sizable sums of money at, in Iran per month just to stay at the negotiating table. That culminates in a process in 2015 where the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Actions, announced. Um, and it's a basically temporary restrictions on Iran's nuclear program in exchange for um, more than $150 billion, according to some estimates, and basically letting Iran off the hook on every other activity that it's involved in, in terms of destabilizing the region, supporting terrorism, et cetera, human rights violations. Um, and so that was what reigned until 2018. Uh, that's when Trump pulls out of the deal, which he called the worst deal ever. Of course, he read every one of those pages. We know he, he you know, must have really been a student of that deal. I am being a little facetious. Um, but at any rate, he, he leaves um, and there's nothing else in place. Um, and so we've been kind of in limbo uh, for the last several years. The, the Trump administration put on significant sanctions. They called it maximum pressure. It um, it dropped Iran's accessible cash reserves to under $10 billion, which is no small feat. That's pretty as close as you get to bankruptcy as a country. Um, and yet somehow Iran survived. I think there are um, interesting counterfactuals to put out there about whether the regime would have survived another four years of Trump, I tend to think that it probably wouldn't. Um, but at any rate, when Biden comes in, um, he made it clear that the goal was to resurrect the deal. This was a legacy foreign policy issue for him and, of course, for uh, former President Obama and a number of people who've come back to join the administration. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, Antony Blinken, the current secretary of state. Um, Rob Malley, the, um, the the current envoy for the deal, and so um, he's Malley is the guy that's really running point on this, and he's doing everything that he can 
Um, I mean, it really looks obsequious. I mean, it, it's almost embarrassing what he's trying to throw at the Iranians right now to entice them to come back into compliance with the deal. Uh, the Iranians have a new president, Ibrahim Raisi, who's a bit more of a, um, let's just say he's probably not interested in talking to the United States as much as um, previous Iranian regimes have. I think there's a real danger, by the way, in talking about moderates and hardliners. Anybody that that works for their, this regime, anybody that represents this regime is, in fact, a hardliner, no matter how you phrase it. Um, this is a murderous regime that supports terrorism and, and oppresses its own people. But at any rate, the, the goal has been to try to bring Iran back. Um, the, the regime doesn't appear terribly eager, and it looks as if they are um, trying right now to get into a lighter version of the deal, where there will be probably greater sanctions relief and, and more perks for the regime in exchange for fewer restrictions on the nuclear program. There was a time where they talked about getting a longer and stronger deal. That talk's long gone. So now it's kind of a more for less is how Mark Dubowitz puts it. We give them more, they give us less. That looks like where we're headed. But of course, that all depends on whether the regime is willing to get back to the table. And then maybe the last other thing to note here is that you got Republicans who are, you know, openly saying that unless this thing's a treaty, it ain't going to last, that there's no way that, you know, if a Republican president comes in, that they're going to countenance this thing again. It was so flawed the last time around. It'll be flawed this time around. So beware Iran, beware international community, beware international businesses. If you start working with Iran, it won't last. And so, you know, I think you have a lot of competing narratives here and some clashes over this. Um, I personally think it would be a big mistake for us to get back in. Um, but it's interesting, you know, there, there still is a debate and there's an echo chamber coming certainly from the White House and others that are big proponents of this. It's amazing to me. I'm not sure how they think this is going to play out in any other way, but that Iran pockets all the money and then walks away with nukes. That is, I think, the game plan for the Iranians. And it's amazing to me that the proponents of this deal can't seem to acknowledge that that's almost certainly where Iran wants to take. Yeah, John, you, um, you know, you mentioned that this, you know, this deal, it's, you know, you said it, the, the previous deal, right, was the worst deal ever. It sounds like this would be the worst, worst deal ever. Uh, I can't understand where, you know, again, this is obviously my opinion, but how do policymakers think that handing Iran mo money to delay building its nuclear program is in the United States' best interest. This is this is just utter insanity. And do you think the other thing that you mentioned in here is this our schizophrenic uh, foreign policy, right? One administration signs a deal, the next administration cancels it, the next administration comes in is going to sign a deal, the next, I mean, this is just no way to conduct foreign policy. I think this really represents the the end of a unified foreign policy uh, within Washington. And we saw this with, uh, well, actually, though, Afghanistan, that was a unified foreign policy with, to both administrate, both Republicans and Democrats wanted to, to end. Um, the only criticism we've seen of Afghanistan has come when, uh, you know, after the fact when it's become politically expedient to do so. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I'll just say this, that um, the 
the first thing to note is that you're right. We used to have a more centrist foreign policy. I mean, it used to be the Democrats and Republicans were equally uh, focused on, you know, the Soviet uh, challenge, the Soviet threat. And, and you didn't see a lot of whiplash uh, between Democrats and Republicans. You know, I mean, you might have the occasional, you know, Nixon to China type initiative, um, you know, Reagan pulling out Star Wars, you know, I mean, wh- where there were there were initiatives within the kind of general framework of what our foreign policy would be. I would say that Iran represents um, the first, but certainly not the last uh, of these whiplash foreign policies where you see significant changes from one administration to another. And it is real cause for concern. I think, you know, you can see the partisanship beginning to creep in to what was normally, you know, kind of, you know, within the 40 yard lines in American discourse. And now all of a sudden there's severe sharp disagreements between parties. And I think it's a problem. And by the way, it's a problem that um, our allies and our enemies all acknowledge, right? Our allies are saying, look, you know, I mean, I I remember actually going and meeting with some senior folks, I'll just say in a a Gulf country. um, And they said, look, we respect your democracy, but you're killing us with how you're going back and forth between one president and another, one administration and another on your Iran policy. How the hell are we supposed to keep up with your politics and your insanity? This is driving us crazy. But then the other part of it is like, you think about a country like Israel, right? And here, you know, they went from completely furious about the Obama administration giving their arch enemy billions of dollars and giving them a patient pathway to a nuclear weapon. Then Trump comes in, right? He just wipes it all off. And they're like, oh, this is awesome, right? We love this. Um, But then, of course, then Biden comes in and they're like, nope, we're going back into the deal. And the Israelis are like looking at each other. How are we supposed to navigate this stuff? And it's hard. And so the politics that we're seeing in America, this very um, sort of hyper-partisan era is having an impact on, on our adversaries um, and our allies. By the way, when, you know, when, I, when I talk about our adversaries, I mean, you know, the, the Iranians almost certainly waited out Trump, knowing that if somebody, you know, if, if Biden came in or a, a Democrat came in, that they'd be saved. And, and that's just, I think, not a good precedent for, for policymaking. Yeah, too, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we we saw the origins of this with the Iraq War, right? You had most of the Senate, if nearly all of the Senate, votes for it, and then within what two to four years, turns actually within you know within within three years, turn on it. And I think once at that point, you know the 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 disagreements in foreign policy, the politicization, the the hyper political, or I'm sorry, the hyper partisan politics when it comes to foreign policy. That's really where it drew in, um, and then it's just become. We've seen this in theater after theater um, in the, that we're dealing with. Uh, you may. I'm going to just come make two quick comments and then. Um, uh, move on to the next question. You know, you had mentioned moderates. There's no such things as Iranian moderates, right? That are involved in the government. We have a lot of, uh, you know, the it, it, we have a, a lot of experience with this when it came to Afghanistan, right? Everyone was looking for the moderate ta- Taliban, trying to, you know, that's. It, it seems like. I think this is lowercase T, lowercase T, man, right? There's the capital T and the lowercase. Right. And then they lowercase are the moderates. And they all form a government. And the guys that everyone wanted to say were moderates 
really are just got on board and signed on it, signed on and took lesser roles. So I think we really saw what the value of the, the moderates were. We just seem to be in, in search of our foreign policy establishment, um, ourselves, uh, you know, us, those of us at FDD and in several other places excluded seem to be in, in a constant search for moderates. And it's, um, it's, it's corrosive to our foreign policy. You know, what's interesting, though, is I, I would even argue now that I think they've given up um, here in the United States. I mean, you know, you don't really hear folks talking about it a whole lot anymore. Even the people that are apologists for the Iranian regime and are talking about getting back into the deal, they're not talking about moderates anymore. They're just saying, like, we just need to do it, guys. Um, shut up and listen to us. Um, you know, that search for that that eternal search for moderation in the, in the Middle East is, I think, given way to you know, what we describe as neo-isolationism, which is like, this is just a, a sinkhole. We're never going to get anything out of being in the Middle East. We can't find moderates. So let's get out entirely. Let's stop trying to shape the battlefield. Yeah. And there, there's a certain element of a subservient foreign policy as well. It seems like we we seem to enjoy, not you again, not you and I, but the establishment in Washington seems to enjoy subjugating themselves to evil regimes to the Taliban, to the, to the Iranians, uh, you know, the Iranian regime. And I just, uh, I find that rep- repulsive uh, myself. I, I just, I'm tired of watching this. It's, it really starts to work well, my soul. Well, it's, it's worked out so well in history, right. Bill. I mean, really. It really has. And, and one final <laughs> comment, um, uh, Mali, is he the, is he the Afghan equivalent of uh, Zalmay Khalizade, the guy who's out there? Sure. Uh, I would argue yes. And actually, you know, just a little bit of news. I don't know if, if, if this is something that anybody can substantiate, but um, the uh, Javad Zarif, the, the, the former foreign minister of Iran, just came out and said that, um, that that I guess that one of the original plans for the JCPOA was actually um, uh, it, that if the Iranians provided it, I guess, to the um, to or to the crisis group, which is where Mali used to work. So he was basically inferring that there was some sort of collusion between the Iranian regime and Mali when he worked for this nonprofit. And now he's in this position where, um, you know, he has immense influence on whether or not a deal will be struck. So, you know, some, some cause for concern there. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, we have the, it's very similar questions about Khalizade and his dealings in Afghanistan. But what ultimately what we know, what they're doing, what they're advocating for is bad for our national security. And so that that takes me to the to the next question. If a deal is done, and I think you and I think it's safe to assume we don't think it will be beneficial to the United States and to our allies and partners in the region. You know, how how will this deal ultimately impa- impact the Middle East and, and beyond? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, you know, as the joke goes, it's really hard to predict anything in the Middle East, let alone the future. Um, But, you know, what I would just say is that it's almost certainly going to lead to some sort of nuclear race, right? That if Iran does acquire, um, you know, uh, a nuclear weapon, then what's to say that the Saudis won't want one or the Emiratis or, you know, the Jordanians, whoever, right? I mean, there's you know, uh, the Egyptians, for that matter, um, you know, there there could be a, a range of countries that may want to go down that path as well. And and I think a, mid, a Middle East that's already been highly unstable, um, that has uh, more than, you know, the, the existing number of nuclear powers declared or undeclared is bad enough. So um, I just think that it's, um, you know, it's something that we all need to watch out for. But the, the other thing to point out here is that, um, a lot of people 
kind of look at the Iranian nuke as, okay, they want to annihilate Israel or they want to annihilate Saudi Arabia. That may be true. Okay. You know, we can stipulate that that may be one of their goals. But really, one of the major concerns is that it will be the ultimate insurance policy for the Iranian regime to do whatever the hell it wants to do in the Middle East, right? So if it's Shiite militias in Iraq and Syria, if it's Hamas, it's Hezbollah, it's precision guided munitions, it's whatever the heck they want to do, you know, their ultimate answer when challenged by the United States, the United Nations, of course, that probably won't happen. But let's just say in a fictional world, the UN actually does confront Iran. I mean, their answer is like, you guys can go pound sand. We've got a nuke and you can't tell us what we can and can't do. And that's the concern is that, you know, no one will be able to hold the regime accountable any longer if it gets that nuclear weapon. Um, and and so that that's one to watch. Uh, but suffice it to say, the, the Middle East will not be any more um, stable as a result of a deal that ultimately legitimizes uh, aspects of Iran's nuclear program and allows them at some point in the future to build on what they have and 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 ultimately break out. No, it's, it's an excellent point. The, the nuclear umbrella for Iran would certainly allow it to double down on its operations throughout the Middle East. Who's going to take? I mean, let me, yeah, I mean, let me ask you, I mean, you know, you, we've seen this before with Pakistan, right? I mean, has anybody been able to hold Pakistan to account for anything that it's done? I mean, you follow this file really closely. Has Have we ever been able to hold Pakistan to account for any of its shenanigans around the, the region since it's gone nuclear? Yeah, absolutely, John. Uh, that is a, a great analogy. Um, so yeah, and the answer to that is no. The United States actually has been fearful of dealing properly with Pakistan. The U.S. officials have known for two decades now that the Pakistanis have been double dealing with the U.S., taking our money, funding the Taliban, and then killing American troops while the U.S. was there. And they, the Pakistan is one in Afghanistan and will never pay a price for that. And a big part of that was because U.S. officials feared Pakistan's nuclear weapons, not being the target of them, but nuclear weapons falling in the hands of jihadists, a nuclear war breaking out between Pakistan and India, um, things of that, or Pakistan distributing nuclear technology to terrorist groups or other countries. Oh, by the way, which it did with North Korea, um, right, with AQ Khan. Um, so, yeah, the, the, it's a great point. I mean, that's that nuclear umbrella that will be that will sit on top of Iran if, if it, it's allowed to happen. And what country is going to take a risk to kill the next Qasem Soleimani, right? Like we're able to do that now. But who is is Israel really going to risk a nuclear confrontation with Iran um, and take that risk to, you know, to target key individuals? That These are the things. These are the implications for Iran. Um, and, and the other thing I think that's key here. What do U.S. allies and the and partners in the Middle East start doing? Do they start looking elsewhere, looking for a more reliable ally? Is it time to cozy up with Russia or with China because we're tired of America's schizophrenic foreign policy, which led to a nuclear Iran and we can't trust the United States anymore? This is, you know, this is a major concern of the, the, the erosion of the of American um past, not just the hard power, but the soft power here. And yeah. that. Well, I'll tell you, I, I mean, I'll tell you, there, there are a couple of things to watch. I mean, look, th there's there's the, the negative possible consequences, which we can get into. Um, but what's really interesting is that the fear of America's departure from the region, the fear of American 
errant foreign policy actually led uh, a number of the Gulf states in Israel to make peace in 2020. And that was a positive thing, right? It was where they said, you know what? I mean, screw this. If, if America's not going to be here to help us, then we, we better help ourselves, right? And create an alliance of sorts where they can share intel and, you know, potentially cooperate on whatever it is, cyber, military, you know, you name it, right? Um, but then there's the other part of it, which I think you rightly raise, which is, you know, if, if the region truly feels like it's been abandoned, that you know, uh, the United States is empowering Iran, and by the way, leaving because, as we discussed, there's this perception that you know it's a sinkhole for American dollars and and for uh, American soldiers, and you know why bother? You can't fix it; it's broken, right? That's the perspective. So between that and the United States handing over power to you know the arguably the most destructive force in the region, the Islamic Republic of Iran. You know, how long before Russia expands beyond, for example, where it is right now in Syria? Um, you know, I mean, if anything, Putin demonstrated to, to the to the Russians, but also to much of the Arab world, he's not leaving. He's going to fight for his clients. Um, you know, how many others can he win over um, if he stays the course? The Chinese could care less about human rights, could care less about you know democratization, it could care less about all the demands that the United States has traditionally placed on its allies in the region, and uh, and so you can imagine the Chinese being able to waltz in there as well. So I think a lot of concerns you rightly raise. Yeah, and, and you know this is a world where the Russians and Chinese are now able to you know look they're they're nowhere near our capacity, but they're able to uh, to you know, before thinking, thinking that the Chinese could uh, project power into the Middle East or Africa, that was, you know, you would have laughed at that in the 1980s, 1990s, but not today. You know, the Chinese are building a credible Navy. They've shown that they're willing to invest in countries. Russians have intervened in Libya and in, 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 um, Syria, and they've shown that they're willing to see these things through. These are things the United States, the way we're acting, um, you make a great point about the human rights. Uh, I'm going to just make a real quick point because um, you had said it's impossible to pr- predict anything in the Middle East, particularly the future. But remember the, you know, with the Abraham, both with the Abraham records and with moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, right? Everyone's in the Arab streets going to explode. This is going to be the end of regimes. Well, none of that happened. Um, so it is, it is very, very, as you note, very difficult to predict what the consequences of something are. But I do think an, a, a nuclear armed Iran will not result in, um, in positive outcomes for the region. I just can't, yeah, I can't I mean, game you know, one Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you really went out on a limb there, Bill. No, but it's, it's Occam's razor, right? I mean, it's, I mean, the simplest explanation often is, um, you know, I think the best way forward in terms of trying to predict what might happen, you throw an empowered, enriched, uh, terrorist sponsoring state um, into the mix uh, that happens to also be either on on the cusp of a nuke or already has one. It's not going to end well. Uh, it, it, sh- it should be pretty obvious to policymakers. Somehow, you know, these guys, you know, uh, they're doing mental gymnastics to try to convince the policymaking community, the international community, that this is the safest way forward. And I just simply don't, I don't get it. No, I don't either. They, you know, they're impressing ultimately, and I I saw this with Afghanistan, they're viewing our enemies or adversaries the way we wish they are instead of the way they actually are. And I think this is, this is 
a massive failure. We did, you know, I hate to keep going back to Afghanistan, but that's so close and it's just, it's over now, right? And we could point to that and say, look, the, you know, we could dissect this. We wanted the Taliban to be moderate. We wanted the Taliban to join an Afghan government. We wanted the Taliban to, to disassociate with Al Qaeda, except the Taliban was never going to do any of those things because the Taliban didn't agree with us. So when you, when you start deluding yourself into believing your enemy is something that it isn't, that it, it, it holds views that it doesn't hold, you are destined for failure. By the way, I'll just add to that, that, you know, when you find middlemen, brokers, interlocutors that you rely on um, to kind of help you get there, and they are also not moderate. And here, of course, I'm referring to our friends in Qatar. Yes. Um, they, they did not have our best interests at heart. I think they were advocates for the Taliban. And when you kind of look at what's happening now with some of these negotiations with Iran, you know, I mean, look, the Russians are involved. Right. Um, the, the, the French are involved. I, you know, I'm not saying the French are the Qataris, but I also would say that they're not necessarily thinking about, um, you know, our best interests. Their record here has been spotty, right? I mean, I think it's it's important to look at the big picture. Yeah, don't get in the way of the French and their big business. I mean, and their overseas oil interests and things of that nature. Yeah, no, don't get don't get in the way of ours either. But I think we we still have some controls, right? All right, we'll take a quick uh, break. I'm Bill Raggio, a senior fellow, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, editor of FDD's Long War Journal and host of Generation Jihad. We're joined today by Dr. Jonathan Chanzer. He's a senior vice president for research at FDD and author of Gaza Conflict 2021, Buy Your Copy. Um, we're talking Iran. It's uh, the, the nuclear deal or the upcoming, the next nuclear deal, what this means for the Middle East. And now we're going to move on and talk about uh, one of my favorite subjects, Iran's. I know everyone thinks I'm Afghanistan and Sunni jihadists, but I've done a lot of work on Iran's proxies and, and Iran's support for terrorist organizations. And uh, so this one's uh, near and dear to, to my heart in a, uh, in a strange way. So, um, John. You know, everyone's aware, everyone in this field, they're, they're aware of Iran's support for Hezbollah, the, the threat it poses to the United States, to Israel, the world. It's conducted attacks in, in South Africa against Jewish interests. Um, but, you know, Iran has supported a, a, a wide array of militias. And we're going to discuss a couple of them today. Uh, obviously, we're going to we'll go over Hezbollah and what's going on with that. Hamas, another, another premier proxy of the Iranian and a thorn in the side of the Israelis. And then we'll look at the Iraqi militias as well as the Houthis, which are in Yemen, which I actually think is one of the most successful um, militias being supported by Iran right now. So um, first, I agree. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I'd say let's let's tackle that one, because honestly, I think that's the story. I, Right now, let's do it. Let's let's flip the yeah. script. Let's go with Hezbollah, John. So yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I look. I'll, I'll just say with with the Houthis. Um, you know, I wrote I wrote a piece with our colleague Matt Swag for the for the journal. Um, I, I got to say, I, I don't know about you, but I, I am so frustrated with the administration's policy on the Houthis. Um, and I, this isn't a partisan thing. This is just simply this is about you know straightforward counterterrorism policy. I mean. For, for those who maybe just want a quick refresher, you know, the Trump administration, on, with one of its last days, decided to designate the Houthis, put them on the sanctions list at the State Department, the Foreign, foreign Terrorist Organization list. They um, they did it without consultation with the incoming administration, which is kind of a no-no. 
you know, I know everybody's shocked to hear that the Trump administration was not up on norms. Um, but you know, <laughs> Who right? so, so yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so they did it and, you know, and it, it didn't go over well, but you know, when you look at the criteria for the Houthis, they are a terrorist organization. There's no doubt about it. The bombings of, you know, of Saudi Arabia, the killing inside of Yemen itself, the, you know, um, the asymmetric warfare that they engage in, there is no doubt that they meet the criteria, but yet, uh, the Biden administration comes in and they delist the group, take it off the list within days, citing the need to get aid into Yemen, saying that if you designate the Houthis, we're not going to be able to do this. Well, I mean, look, I'll just say we have had sanctions on other terrorist groups in other jurisdictions. Um, you know, I think about Hamas that controls the Gaza Strip. We've got sanctions on the Assad regime in Syria. <laughs> How about the Taliban? Um, right. And you're still able to get aid into Afghanistan. Of course, you know, we had troops there to help make sure that that things were flowing. But, you know, I'm sure you could probably name a handful of other places where sanctions have been in place. I don't know. Well, I mean, one off the top of your head. we've listed the PKK or the Kurdistan Workers Party as a terrorist organization. And yet we support them while they're fighting the um, the Islamic State in northern Syria. So, you know, I mean, we, we, we find ways around this. But to, to me, it always define your enemy, right? Define them. And I, I completely agree, disagree with the, our policy with the regards to the SDF or PKK. Um, but, but if the U S wants to do something, if it wants to move aid or move support, it could do so, but there's no reason to delist. And, and one of the things that really bothered me with the delisting is the administration of the state department said the Houthis act like a terror. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here that they listed all the reasons why they were designated and basically said, yeah, this acts like a or- terrorist organization, but we're not going to call them that because we need to be able to get aid in there. It was the most. And I'll, t- I'll tell you what, what got me even more was that we've seen statements put out by the State Department since then where they're like, the Houthis are actually preventing aid from getting into the country, right? And then and then, and then every time there's a terrorist attack, whether it's against the Saudis, whether it's against the Emiratis, they come out with these statements condemning a terrorist attack against a group that has been delisted as a terrorist organization. I mean, go figure. I mean, it's like, again, we're twisting ourselves in knots here uh, for reasons that I don't quite get. And some people think, by the way, that there's been a fear of designating the Houthis or keeping them on the list because they want to try to keep channels open with the Iranians for nuclear negotiations, that this might have been a concession of some sort. I don't know if that's true, but but certainly, you know, it it it, it smells a little bit like appeasement. No, you want to appease the Iranians, delist Hezbollah. I mean, like the Houthis, I mean, seriously, is that going to catch the eyes of the Iranians? Is there a channel there between, I mean, that's- a- yeah, but law- Lawmakers, law- lawmakers uh, will not put up with Hezbollah. That's no, I, been, I, I think it's too, it's too obvious, right? right? Um, with the Houthis, I mean, most people can't point to Yemen on a right. map, man. I mean, they don't know what's going on there. You say the Houthis, they don't even know what that means, right? I mean, you, you know, then you use their name Ansar Allah. Maybe it sounds closer to Hezbollah, but yeah, I don't. Most people, again, not up on this, which I think is as you know, allowed the administration to keep its current policy in place. But they're feeling the heat now after some of those attacks against Saudi. And uh, some of those attacks even more recently against the UAE. Yeah, you know, and when the, the – just another irony here. Um, the timing of this stuff is, listen, if I didn't, you know, have dark humor, I'd have none whatsoever. But I remember they were delisted. And then within days, the Houthis conducted an attack that the State Department um, 
condemned. I mean, and, you know, for again, for all of the reasons. And it's just sitting here and watching this thing. You know, they're just playing you for fools. The Houthis, State yeah. Department, they're playing you for fools. It's almost like they're doing this to to stick it in your eye. And, you know, people, the, the Houthis control more than half of Syria. They control the capital. Yemen. I'm sorry. Yemen. Oh, Yemen. My bad. Um, yeah, they control half of Yemen. If they controlled half of Syria. Yeah. We'd be no. In real yeah, trouble. That, that, that yeah. is true. We really would. Yeah. They really would be the most underrated Iranian proxy in that case. <laughs> they would be. They would be. <laughs> I mean, it's it's launching ballistic missiles at the UAE currently. We've had to deploy yeah. Yeah. Um, aircraft and anti ballistic missiles and and warships. This this is yeah, and- a terrorist regime and this. The, the, our, our our response to this is just shameful, and it shows how oh, it has been. Oh, it really does, and it, it it undermines the integrity of our sanctions regime. As a you know, former Treasury guy, I got to say, you know, you got to stick to the letter of the law. When something meets criteria, you can't delist it for political reasons. By the way, delisting set a terrible precedent for other terrorist groups that may try to get themselves delisted. IRGC, for example, you mentioned Hezbollah. I think that's a long shot, but. You know, I could imagine other groups, some of the Shiite militias that you have tracked at Long War Journal in Iraq and Syria, they may try to de- get, you know, get those delisted, um, you know, the ones that are on the list anyway. And so I think it's a, it's a huge problem. But you also have to remember that, that you know, there there was there is an attempt here. There's a political element to this, which is that the Biden administration kind of has it out for the Saudis. Right. And and so the delisting of the Houthis was kind of a finger in the eye of the Saudis saying, look, you know, you guys killed Jamal Khashoggi and, you know, you've kind of you've waged a pretty sloppy war in in Yemen. And so, you know what, we're going to do this and, you know, eat it was kind of, I think, the the message that they were sending to the Saudis. I got to say, really short sighted, really messy at this point. You know, you see the Houthis only growing stronger. You know, you mentioned the attack right after the delisting. You know, I looked at some data suggesting that the number of attacks have actually doubled um, since the delisting. So in other words, not only has the delisting failed to to allow for the you know provision of aid in the country, but it's actually also prevented even, um, you know, a step towards reconciliation in the country, which I think has been the ultimate goal, right? Dialogue leading to some kind of peace. But the Houthis, I mean, it feels like they're more and more under the thumb of the Iranians. Um, the, the weapons, the training, the cash, it's all flowing. By the way, thanks to a headquarters in the country of Oman that nobody talks about. That should be another issue that, you know, the Omanis should be, you know, I mean, just getting knocked around for it. But we're not even calling them out. We're saying, oh, sure, let's let's host some dialogue in, in Muscat or something. So it's complicated, but it's been, I would say, a failed policy there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be clear to our listeners, the attacks we're talking about that that John's talking about doubling that have doubled. We're talking attacks against civilian targets outside of Yemen into attacks against the, the airport in the UAE was one of the most recent ones against Saudi oil facilities and cities, they even attacked Mecca, if I recall. Um, I mean, th- th- we're not talking about them launching attacks on military targets to try to deter uh, Saudi military operations or oper- military operations against the US- UAE. They're intentionally targeting c- civilians with um, sophisticated military hardware, um, drones, uh, ballistic missiles, things of that nature. Um, and yet this is action that's being condoned by the by the uh, Biden administration. Yeah, that's right. 
That's right. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll hope that, you know, maybe with, with some of the recent events that it may place a little bit of pressure um, on the administration to reconsider its uh, its approach to the Houthis. But, um, you know, I, I'd say, uh, you know, I, I know we don't give out awards to terrorist groups, but they're the uh, they're like the most improved player uh, <laughs> over like the I mean, they really they've 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 upped their game. And, um, you know, it, I'd say they're one to watch, you know, um, the, I, I don't want to call them JV, you know, uh, to to borrow from another terrorist uh, <laughs> snafu, right? Um, th- this is not a JV team any longer. These guys are varsity, and and we really do need to, um, uh, you know, figure out ways to neutralize. Again, a lot of people think Yemen doesn't matter. Um, you know, I think it's it's a bigger issue. It's about how much power Iran wields, um, and and sort of how we deal with terrorist issues within the U.S. bureaucracy. And right now it looks like a failed test case. Yeah, John, I would say the Houthis have earned their spot on the varsity jihadist team, terrorist team. Yeah. So they, yeah. Like fifth, fifth man, maybe fourth. Yeah. No, no, it might be a second yeah. or third line yeah. player, right? You yeah. Know, yeah. The yeah. grinder line, but they're, they're there. They're, you know, they've earned that spot. They, they certainly, uh, they made their mark on, on, on the international jihadist world. I think we'll, we'll move on to the Iraqi militias right now. Um, I think that's a logical step. And then we'll finish off with uh, Hamas and, and with Hezbollah. Uh, the premier guys, and then we'll move on to Iran's support for quickly uh, to Al Qaeda and the Taliban. Um, the Iraqi militias, uh, this is, you know, I've felt that this is sort of the untold story in all of this. We look at the, the impact of Hezbollah. Um, it's recruited from what a population in Lebanon that's what about four or five million and about 60 or what is it like 40, 50, 60 percent Shia. Um, uh, you know, let's, let's call it, let's say a slight, slight majority. Yeah, it's a yeah. slight majority. Yeah. So let's just call it half, right? You're talking 2 million or so to recruit from. But don't forget there's Sunnis and then also Christians. So it's like a third, third, they, third, okay. but it's, I yeah. think a little, little bit more, I, I believe we can look it up. But yeah, yeah. We're, t- we're talking in the one point something million of Shia to recruit from. You have, in, uh, Iraq is a country of about 36 million, um, give or take. Estimated to be about sixty percent Shia. Let's maybe what? Okay, let's call it fifty. So we're 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 looking around eighteen to twenty million uh, Shia to recruit from. Iran used Hezbollah to help build the Iraqi mili- uh, militias in the same vein, in the same to to mirror what Hezbollah is. Hezbollah operatives we detained the U.S. military detained them while it was uh, while it was inside of Iraq. Um, to, uh, they were training, arming, funding, uh, uh, recruiting, you know, and, and it's not just one militia now. We're, we're talking multiple militias. Several of them are actually listed as foreign terrorist organizations. Two of them are Asib al-Haq or the League of the Righteous. And the other one is, uh, aptly named Hezbollah Brigades or Katib Hezbollah. These are organizations that, um, ironically, the U.S. supported while they were fighting the Islamic State from 2014 to 2019, the U.S. military essentially acted as the air. Um, these these units were uh, they're organized under what's known as the Popular Mobilization Forces or PMF, as it's called. Um, this is the grouping militias. The, it's been uh, the Iraqi Parliament made it a an official security branch that supports, or I'm sorry, that answers directly to Iraq's Prime Minister. Um, I believe this is set up to be, uh, it's analogous to the Ar- Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. You have the same structure there. These militias, uh, leaders, they've said that they would, uh, if, the, if ordered by 
the Grand Ayatollah of Iran to overthrow the Iraqi government. They would gladly do so. They've, they've basically sworn allegiance to Iran's leader. Um, this is a major concern. You have a wide recruiting base. These are groups that are very good at recruiting, very good at propaganda, slick videos. They are largely, if not almost wholly responsible for defeating the Islamic State. They were on the vanguard. They were the frontline forces when the Iraqi security forces collapsed. They prevented the collapse of Baghdad. Um, I think this is and that's, by the way, why they've been welcomed into the, yeah. you know, into the into the government structure. Yeah, exactly. You know, that, that you know, they, they, from the perspective of some Iraqis, they've they've earned their spot. The problem is, as you as you know, they, they answer to Iran at the end of the day. They don't answer to um, to the Iraqi government. And that's the real concern. Right. There's a kind of a dual loyalty issue, uh, a conflict within. And, you know, it's it's allowed Iraq to succumb to Iranian influence beyond, I think, what anybody ever envisioned. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one weakness of this is that there's multiple militias. Now, they they, they seem to be collegiate, the leaders, right? But they don't all report. If these militias were actually organized into that popular mobilization forces is, is, an act, is sort of an umbrella organization, right? Um, think of it as a command, but it's it's a loose command. These organizations, you know, Kitab Hezbollah, Operates under its leader, follows its leader. You know, Asib al Haq follows its leader, Mahdi Army, or whatever it's called today, uh, Promise Day Brigade, or whatever uh, Muqtada al Sadr wants to call it. Now, he's not part of the PMF, but it's just another militia that's supported by the Iranians on the down low. If these, if these guys could ever organize and truly integrate, you would be, you would have a very formidable force. That, uh, you know, and I think this is something that countries like Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Egypt, they should be very, very concerned about what's emanating from Iraq. And I think this is just, again, just one of these untold stories. It's just not understood. Um, and you're just curious about your opinion on that, John. No, I, I think that's right. I think that, you know, we, we, you know, again, getting to kind of why we left. Um, you know, or why we're leaving the Middle East, you know, it's the, the, the PMF or the PMU popular mobilization unit. It's the other way people describe it. Um, you know, they, they've kind of overtaken the country, uh, Iran through basically a combination of hard and soft power. Um, and just by, you know, kind of, um, wielding the Shiite population that, you know, has its sort of, uh, sectarian loyalties, if you will. Um, you know, we've watched, Iraq slipped through our hands. Um, and it's, it's, it, I have to say, it's incredibly frustrating. I think it is probably one of the, the most important um, underreported stories out of the Middle East is the extent to which many Hezbollah, many Houthis are, have sprouted up all across Iraq and into Syria. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think the, there will be sovereignty issues. There already are sovereignty issues relating to Iraq, how they're going to keep control over their territory when you have these, you know, um, essentially, um, you know, these militias that may not want to be governed, may not actually accept uh, the government of Iraq as, um, you know, as, as the ultimate address to where they, they, they must answer. So there is a huge problem brewing there. Um, and, and we've seen, by the way, that these um, militias have been used 
from time to time in smuggling operations on behalf of the regime, but also military operations as well, targeting Americans, targeting others in the region. So we've got a huge potential problem brewing. It's already a problem in and of itself, but it can mushroom. And the question is, what does Iran want out of this? How does it plan to wield it? Um, you know, and that might be actually a good moment to just look at what has been happening in Syria. A lot of these, you know, similar Shiite militias are helping Iran move weaponry um, across the Middle East and primarily with the destination of Hezbollah. Uh, but we're talking about, you know, precision guided munitions, parts, precision guided munitions in, in whole, um, and, and also just um, establishing military um, uh, centers of operation throughout Syria, not just, you know, uh, as a means of gaining a foothold in the country to defend against Sunni jihadists or, you know, those that are trying to topple the Assad regime, but also to prepare for a war. You can kind of get a sense that a cordon is being drawn around that border with Israel. And they're trying to move more and more of these irregular troops um, in a way that could threaten Israel. Now, the Israelis, by the way, have carried out over the last, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years, they've carried out thousands of strikes, some attributed, some not, all targeting Iranian assets, whether that's, you know, um, things that have been smuggled, individuals that are operating. We've seen some senior commanders killed. Um, but it is this remarkable shadow war that, again, you want to talk about an unreported story. That's a big one. Um, the Israelis call it the uh, war between wars, WBW. Um, and the goal is just to try to weaken their enemy as much as possible before the next major round. Um, but you look at kind of what's happening, the amount of munitions that have been used, the number of targets struck. It looks like a flat out war. Um, it's just amazing that it hasn't spilled over, but it, it is absolutely one to watch. I don't know if, if I don't have you ever seen anything quite like this in terms of the the volume involved. No, I, I haven't, John, and and I think that a big reason is because Syria has just become a free for all, right? Uh, it, it's it's literally you know Assad. I think given his choices, he wouldn't accept the Russian and the Iranian support, but he's his survival is completely dependent on it. And he's so weak that he really can't respond any longer to these Israeli incursions, these airstrikes, primarily airstrikes, be it either drone or manned vehicles. And also I've seen some missile strikes, things of that nature, targeting the, you know, as you noted, this war between the war. I've never, no, I've never quite seen, I mean, the only thing I could kind of think of that might be analogous would be like U.S. operations in like Laos and Cambodia against the North Vietnamese, where you had this sort of shadow war going on between two different groups in a in a third party country. Not that Assad isn't a supporter of Hezbollah, but I think it rather at this point in time probably wouldn't like missiles raining down on his military installations. And, you know, it's, it's just another headache for him to deal with. And you alluded to this and I just want to be very clear about this. Iraqi militias are operating inside of Syria. I mean, some of these militias have just literally, they partitioned off, renamed themselves and just operate within Syria and are operating alongside Hezbollah. We've seen members of these militias, Hezbollah brigades and Asiba Haq and others um, being killed inside of Syrian territory during these operations. So, you know, I, 
it's you know it's it's the shadow war between the war is really to me is the best way to look at it this, this is all happening in the open but it's it's completely dark no one i don't think anyone really understands what's happening or the average person really doesn't understand the scope and scale of these of this war between the war that's occurring in syria yeah and, and you know i think um the israelis to a certain extent are probably the only ones standing in the way of Iran and, and, you know, what's been traditionally been described as, you know, the land bridge or the Shiite crescent, where the Iranians are able to establish, um, you know, physical presence stretching from Western Iran through Iraq, through Syria into Lebanon. And, you know, the Israelis are, are really the only ones capable and willing to disrupt whatever this thing is shaping up to be. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's for that reason that I think they, they should be getting American support. I think it's been tacit support. Um, but, but again, no one talks about it. No one wants to draw attention to it. And so here you got, you know, you sort of have this war that drags on, you know, it didn't slow during the, the COVID crisis. It just, if anything, it just seems like it keeps escalating. And by the way, it even extends beyond places like that, where the Israelis and the Iranians have been duking it out on the high seas, cyber you know, I mean, this is spilling over and getting bigger. Um, and, um, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating phenomenon to, to observe. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned that nobody wants to talk about it. Obviously, the U.S. doesn't want to mention Israel's role in conducting operations in foreign countries. Neither does the Israelis don't want to advertise that they're operating inside Syria all that much. The Iranians can't admit what they're doing. Hezbollah doesn't want to admit what it's doing. You know, nobody and Assad doesn't want to admit that it's a we that he's a weak, um, propped up leader where, uh, you know, third parties are fighting a war on his territory. So it's the perfect storm for it being a, a silent war, so to speak. Um, you know, there was one more thought I had about this and this just popped in my head. It's not a really a, a crafted thought. I'm curious what you think, but like, you know, is this a, a, a net positive or a net negative for the Israelis? It's almost like this, this is a continuation of war on its doorstep here. Is this just more of the same the, that, that some of the battlefront has shifted from southern Lebanon into Syria? Is it, you know, is the threat, I, I, the way I look at it is the threat is increasing. There's just no way to see it with the, the, the involvement of the militias. We're just seeing, you know, we now have like a bridge, an active bridge between from Iran into through Iraq into Syria, you know, to arm Hezbollah. I just, it's, if I'm the Israelis, I'm very concerned about what's happening here. Yeah. And I'd say actually that's a perfect segue to, I guess, our second to last topic today, which is, you know, just Hezbollah. Yes. And, and, and the reason why I think there's real concern um, in Israel is because Hezbollah's got right now, according to the estimates that I've heard, several hundred PGMs in its possession, which has been a lot of what this activity has been about for Iran. It's been about smuggling this advanced weaponry in, into Lebanon so that its most effective and deadly proxy can arm itself in ways that Israel may not be able to defend against. I mean, just to be clear, when we talk about PGMs, precision guided munitions, I don't believe, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong in the Sunni space, I've never seen a non-state actor slash terrorist organization acquire precision guided munitions in this way, Pre munitions that can evade um, air defenses and munitions that can hit within five to 10 yards of their intended target, right? Incredibly dangerous when you think about, 
you know, Hezbollah's ability to hit, you know, the nuclear reactor in southern Israel or the chemical plant in um, in the town of Haifa, which is in Israel's north, just as two examples that could create catastrophic attacks. But I mean, Bill, I mean, I'll ask you, have you yeah. ever seen a terrorist organization with this capability, yeah. right? It's always been a state actor. Yeah, it's yeah, this is this is getting into the realm. This is where Hezbollah is crossing over into being. I mean, and look, they essentially control or, or wield enormous influence within the Lebanese country, uh, government, right? I mean, it's essentially is becoming a state actor here. And and yeah, to answer your question, though, no, I've not seen Al-Qaeda, I've not seen the Islamic State wielding sophisticated weapons of this nature. The closest thing I've seen is uh, anti-tank missiles that have been sent to so-called rebels in, in Syria, and they just hand them over to Al-Qaeda's branch there, and they're being used. But that's it. Not Not to the degree of what Hezbollah is acquiring. And this is you know, not just a concern for Israel; it's a concern for the U.S. and its interest overseas. The they that Hezbollah helped build an organization that killed over six hundred soldiers inside of Iraq. They they gleefully did this. Iran provided bounties in both Iraq and in, in Afghanistan to kill American soldiers. They armed, trained, funded, and um, and equipped and provided safe haven for terror groups. And Hezbollah is, you know, a premier terrorist organization that, you know, its acquisition of precision guided missiles uh, should strike fear in the heart of everyone and anyone who cares about peace in the Middle East. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I would take it a step further, though, too, is, you know, the violation of what we would only be able to describe as the norm in in the provision of this of this weaponry, the, the proliferation of this weaponry. Um, you know, if this becomes something that is, you know, um, more commonplace, you could see, and by the way, as, and we can use this as a jump point to the next spot, but we've seen, you know, that Iran and, uh, and Al Qaeda have cooperated. Um, you know, we've seen the interconnectivity between Hezbollah, Iran, Al Qaeda, and other Sunni groups. So if you can transfer it to one group, what's to say you can't transfer it to another and to another? Now, all of a sudden, all of America's asymmetric, you know, enemies uh, could potentially be armed with these sophisticated weapons. That is a very different scenario. I mean, part of the reason why I think America has been nominally successful in combating uh, a lot of these terrorist groups is because they're operating with very basic rudimentary weapons, right? They're flying planes into buildings because they don't have the weapons. They're carrying out suicide bombings because they don't have the weapons. This is, you know, what a lot of people would call weapons of the week. You're now looking at a far more sophisticated arsenal, which is something that really, I mean, I'm shocked personally that we haven't seen more attention on this, right? That that we haven't seen more attention in Washington about stopping this process now, calling it out publicly, challenging the Iranians, um, hauling them before the UN Security Council for that matter. Not that that does anything, but, you know, I mean, at least acknowledging and and exposing what's happening here because of what could happen down the line. Yeah. And, and the, the whole point there is then you would have to but then what does that do to ne- negotiations in the nuclear realm? Then we have to recognize that Iran may not be a friendly country that is doing things right. that are nasty. Um, before and before we jump into Iran's support for al-Qaeda and the Taliban, Sunni jihadist groups, we'll, we'll talk about another Sunni jihadist group here, um, Hamas, which obviously operates in Palestinian territories. 
Um, Iran has supported Hamas for what, three, four decades now? Uh, 1980. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you do the math, folks. Um, in your book, Gaza Conflict 2021, you note that Hamas escaped last summer's war with Israel without taking any heat for being an Iranian proxy. How is this even possible, John? What is, what has happened in the world that, that Iran can support a group that launches a war against Israel and takes zero heat for it? So the answer actually, it, I'd say tracks back to that old adage. You give a man a fish, and he'll come back the next day and ask for another. You teach a man a fish, and he'll be able to feed himself for the rest of his life. Um, this is basically what the Iranians have done with Hamas. They provided them with the know-how um, to create their own rockets and, and projectiles. Um, they have helped them develop uh, uh, tunnel building and, and construction technology. Um they have helped them uh, acquire drones and operate them. Um, but you don't see them as intricately involved, intimately involved with the day-to-day of the organization's operations the way you do with a lot of these Shiite militias, certainly with Hezbollah, where there's kind of an, an acknowledged um, high-level um, relationship. With Hamas, you have um, various centers of decision-making. So you got, you know, Gaza Strip, you got Turkey, you got Qatar, you got Iran, and all these different leaders all come together and reach a consensus about war, about, you know, ceasefires, about training, about weapons, etc. Iran's over the years, I mean, don't get me wrong, the Iranians have provided hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in assistance, and a huge amount of training and, and you know, uh, help with commandos and frogmen and all these things that we've already discussed. Um, but they are able to do so now from arm's length. And so, you know, there are people out there today who I think very wrongly assert that, um, hey, you know, uh, sure, Iran helps them. But, you know, it's not like, you know, they're they're not a, you know, they don't control uh, Hamas. You know, I, I think that's a distinction without too much of a difference at this point. You know, if you've helped to develop a lethal terrorist organization over the course of, you know, 30 something years, um, that should be enough. And if you're a journalist covering this story, you know, shame on you for not even acknowledging that in your reporting during these flare-ups, um, you know, in, in the Gaza Strip. And so that was actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I was so incredibly frustrated with the media coverage of the war. Um, look, I don't care if you want to criticize Israel for settlement construction or whatever, but you're going to ignore the role of Iran as a sponsor of terrorism in a conflict between a terrorist group and an American ally, it, it just to me seems really off. So anyway, um, that's kind of how they were able to get away with it. Um, I Unfortunately, I think they're going to be able to continue to get away with it because there'll be a fifth war, sixth war, seventh war in the Gaza Strip. We expect those to flare up every couple of years. Iran likes it that way. And that's what will happen. Yeah, it keeps things on edge. It's, it's certainly... You know, it keeps Israel on the defensive. It keeps them focused on an, on a, the near enemy, and and it's less pressure the Israelis can put on the put on the Iranians on their home for home turf. And you know, yeah. when it comes to they the, fight, you know, I like to say they they love fighting Israel to the last Palestinian. Absolutely, yeah. No, they they the, yep, they love fighting the United States and Iraq to the to the last Iraqi Shia. They you know, it's just it's a it's 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 their their love of uh, supporting um, someone else's jihadist. Uh, there, 
I think that when it comes to the press too, I think this just this narrative has taken hold that the Israelis are responsible for this, the occupation narrative, the you know just it's it, the Palestinians have just been become the cause celeb when in the Israeli Palestinian conflict amongst the press. There's just and and like you, the Israelis have made mistakes. They've done things that I don't agree with, but at the end of the day, it is a democracy. It is a free country. That is not perfect, just as we here in the United States are not perfect. You know, if any our listeners know that um, we're not going to defend the United States when it makes mistakes, but uh, that's we actually have the freedom to do so, to to criticize our government. You won't have that freedom to do so in Hamas run occupied tel- uh, pal- Palestinian territories or in, inside of Iran and things of that nature. And that's and that's why we ultimately do come to the defense of countries like Israel and the United States. Um, let's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going long, John, two more quick topics and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Um, Ooh, it's an app. It's a, it's, it's a marathon. I know. Sorry. I told you to be quick and here, here we are. Right. But you know, once you Good start looking, I like you. it's, it's Good a thing testament. I like you. <laughs> it's a testament to Iran's support for terrorist organizations. Right? No, you could, you could spend, you mean, you could spend days talking yeah. about this. I mean, we're actually covering a lot of ground pretty quickly, to be honest. Yeah, we we got a little bit more to cover, and there's a lot we didn't. I mean, Iran's support for terror groups in uh, in the in the Gulf region, right? In in Saudi Arabia and in the UAE and other countries, right? There's there's small militias there that they support, and their activities in places like South America and Africa. Um, you know, we could go on and on, but we'll uh, we'll we'll finish we'll round this out with Iran's support for both Al Qaeda and for the Taliban. We'll start off with Al Qaeda. Look, there's been numerous designations um, of al-Qaeda leaders who are known to be sheltering and operating from Iran, including that designation that details the so-called, this is in quote, put deep the words special deal in quotes. That's from a treasury designation in, I believe it was 2011, um, that noted that Iran and al-Qaeda have a deal. They have an agreement that al-Qaeda leaders can shelter there as long as al-Qaeda itself doesn't attack Iranian interests inside of Iran and try and keep it, uh, keep it to a low point outside of Iran. And this deal has, is now 11 uh, years old. And lest you think that this was something from the Bush administration, again, it was 2011 under President Obama. Um, the deal was mentioned, uh, uh, reiterated during the Trump and Trump administration and the most recent t- country reports on terrorism from 2021. So that's last year t- terrorism for the last year for the past year also notes that this special deal is still in effect and its senior Al Qaeda leaders are operating in Iran and even the United Nations sanctions and monitoring team. Um, has noted that, that Iran is sheltering out top Al Qaeda leaders. How, what, what do you make of this, John? Why is Iran getting in bed? I mean, look, I know the answer, but I want to hear your opinion on this. Why is Iran getting in bed with groups like Al Qaeda, which they have different, they do have fundamental differences with, and they also get in bed with groups like the Taliban? Is this tactical, strategic, or a combination of both? It's all of the above, man. I mean, you know, look, this is enemy of my enemy stuff, right? At the end of the day. But by the way, I mean, you, you didn't even get into some of it. I mean, I know you know all this, but maybe for, you know, for for, for our, our listeners, you know, first of all, you know, the Treasury Department's been putting out designations of um of of, of Al-Qaeda operatives that have been based in Iran since the mid-2000s. And it's been consistently produced 
um, by Treasury Departments of both Democratic and Republican administrations. This is bipartisan. It's fact. There are, by the way, some who are out there like Peter Bergen who talk about this arrangement as, you know, these people are under house arrest. Um, I think that is a very generous way of describing this, this relationship, you know, where, you know, you have uh, the family of you know, Osama bin Laden, you know, they're getting together for weddings in Iran, right, over in, in years past, right? So this has been a pretty cozy relationship that's existed. Um, I, and, and of course, we can even go back to the 9-11 Commission report, which notes that some of the hijackers uh, traveled or trained in Iran and, and that Iran likely had something to do with this. Of course, Iran had some things to do with the 1998 twin embassy bombings. I mean, this goes back a long way. And I think, you know, there is, I think, something that needs to be understood in general, which is that, you know, a lot of people make a big deal about the Shiite-Sunni sectarian divide. Um, And that is a thing in a lot of the Arab world, in a lot of the Muslim world. But as far as Al-Qaeda is concerned, they don't care if you're Sunni or Shiite, as long as you are waging their war. And they have found common cause. Hamas is a Sunni terrorist organization that they've worked with. Um, they worked with the um, the Sunni regime in Sudan for many years. Um, this has been a consistent theme with the Iranians. They are happy to work with any violent actor who is willing to work with them. And so this is something that I suspect we're going to continue to see in some shape or form. It is kind of amazing, though, when you think about that um, you know, it, it certainly looks the overall trend would make it seem like the Sunni terrorist pace has dropped and the Shiite has grown over the years. I'm not sure that's true, but I do think that we see more and more of that cooperation, perhaps behind the scenes, that may be fomenting both. Yeah, and I, on that last point, the you know, I think I think with the 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 Shia side of it, it's just been more visible, right? We've seen a lot of uh, they've had good, great success the, the, with these in Yemen, the militias in Syria, what's happened in Iraq, right? Um, we're seeing so we're, you, you almost said that like Borat, great success, the great success. Um, <laughs> yes, but again, the Sunni uh, jihad has had great success as well. They've taken over Afghanistan. Jihad is uh, dare I say exploding in Western and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so they've had great success. Again, they've had good success in those theaters. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And, you know, John, what, at what point when these two groups are operating, they're cooperating, they have a secret deal that's been in effect. Now let's, we can point back to 11 years, but they, there's, they've been working together for at least three decades plus. What, what point does a tactical relationship become a strategic relationship? And on Peter Bergen, um, who I often disagree with, uh, you know, the idea that they're under loose house arrest, that's not what the treasury, the, the treasury isn't characterizing it like that, um, for one. And two, when the Israelis assassinated Abu Muhammad al-Masri, who was al-Qaeda's second in command in Tehran, he was, he decided not to bring his IRGC bodyguard with him that day. And he was hanging out in Tehran with his daughter. Um, you know, the, and by the way, I'm not making this up. You could read this in the New York Times if you uh, if you question my sources. That's the reporting on this. Um, there is no reason to um, think that this is not true. This is we know that this is happening. You mentioned the wedding. Osama bin Laden's son, Hamza bin Laden, is married. You see senior Al Qaeda leaders at that wedding 
they're not under house arrest. It's not even a loose house arrest. They're hanging out in the hall. Um, my guess is the IRG is hanging out outside, making sure that nobody interferes with Hamza's uh, grand wedding. Yeah, uh, so. I mean, look, I'm sure, I'm sure they're also trying to prevent, you know, um, you know, these guys from uh, attacking things that they don't want to right. see hit. So, you know, there's a bit of a symbiotic thing happening there. Um, but yeah, it's a strategic relationship for them now. It's one of the weapons that they have at their disposal. Um, perhaps they can't control it as much as they might be able to control, you know, Hezbollah or some of the militias that we talked about, a cyber hawk or Qatayb Hezbollah, you know, in Iraq, um, or, or even the Houthis. But but they still have the ability to wield them in some shape or form, much in the same way that they're able to with, uh, you know, with with Hamas. And so, you know, I think we found that over the years that there's really, you know, very, there are very few terrorist organizations that Iran won't try to um, get close to, um, at, you know, as the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world. We saw, you know, fingerprints of Iran and Afghanistan for that matter, right? I mean, this is, this is something we see worldwide. Yeah. And, you know, look, Iran doesn't need to direct Al Qaeda. All it needs to do is ensure that Al Qaeda doesn't interfere with its interest with Iranian interests. Al Qaeda has its own operations and its own plans and its own theaters that often don't sometimes conflict with the Iranians and but often do not. Um, and j- just by allowing them to have safe haven and providing them support and allowing to to survive and thrive, that is just as important as providing money and direction and other things. Um, let's, let's move on to the Taliban. Um, I just recently in October, it was late October. I testified in a case uh, called, uh, Cabrera v. um, Iran. So this was family, um, U S soldiers and civilians who were killed or wounded in Iraq. So if you're obviously, if they were killed, the families are suing. If they were alive, they themselves were plaintiffs on the case. They're suing Iran because Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism. So the U S law allows, you know, to allows, um, American citizens to seek compensation. We saw this with 9-11 and, and other um, families and other cases. When I first started this, I knew the case and started the research. I knew that Iran um, supported the Taliban, but I always assumed that it was more of a peripheral thing. I would have described Pakistan's support for the Taliban as being primary and Iranian support being tertiary, right? That they would support groups along the border, you know, the sheltering of the Al Qaeda leaders that are, that, that they'd say lead, uh, Taliban leaders would get safe haven, things of that. But I didn't think of it as being an all encompassing thing. And then we did the research. Then I really got into the research. Some of the things we got was declassified documents from the U.S. military intelligence reports that were detailing ties between Iran and senior Taliban leaders who have been designated. It's it's very clear. The Iranians provided weapons. They provided training. They provided safe haven and they provided financial support to Taliban subgroups throughout the country, including the Haqqani network. We even traced Iranian support to a cell with um, inside of Kabul. And this, this the cell is known by the U.S. military as the Kabul attack network. This is a cell that operate was the Taliban, which included the Haqqanis and groups like Al-Qaeda, Lashkar-e-Taiba, Islamic Movement Uzbekistan, Movement of Taliban in Pakistan. They all pulled their resources in order to 
launch more effective attacks in the capital of Kabul. And often the targets were U.S. soldiers, um, U.S. military, NATO military installations, ho- soft targets like hotels where foreigners would be. Um, so this this alliance, this Kabul attack network was able as a force multiplier for the Taliban, right? They can launch more spectacular attacks. And these are attacks we've seen like overrunning the Serena Hotel with people going in and and going clearing floor to floor and killing people and launching suicide attacks, things of that nature. And we they tracked a re- IRG support to a, tal- a known Taliban commander who was a known leader within the Kabul attack network. And this is the support that, now why would Iran support the Taliban? They had disagreements over Taliban support for, I'm sorry, the Taliban executing Shia inside of Afghanistan in the 1990s. There were conflicts between the two um, over this. I mean, the Iranians tend to, you know, look at the Shia and foreign countries as being the, under their protection. Well, and the answer is quite simple when you when you look at it. Iran's interests were driving the U.S. out of Afghanistan. So they wanted to kill and wound American soldiers in order to drive up the price for U.S. presence in Afghanistan. Why does Iran want the U.S. out of Afghanistan? They don't want, they didn't want U.S. on their borders in any way, shape, or form. They feared U.S. interference. I mean, I don't know if you recall, John, but I don't want to say it was, maybe was it a decade ago or it, it was a couple of years ago where a sophisticated U.S. on, um, surveillance plane, I believe it was unmanned, crashed in, in Iranian, I think it was right on oh, the it, it crashed in Afghanistan, and then the Iranians came up with their own version of it. Yes, right? exactly. No, I, th- I, th- I thought it crashed on the Iranian side of the border. Oh, I, th- I thought it was in Afghanistan. Well, they, then they sure. recovered it, right? Like, so, right. yeah, and so, and they were, they're always fearful of the U.S. spying on them from Afghanistan, but more importantly, being present there in order to conduct operations inside of Iran. And so they team up with the Taliban, who they may not have great interest with, but look, you know, the that Iran-Al-Qaeda relationship facilitates Iran's support for the Taliban. They are able to work with one group. They could work with another. So yeah. Iran is- But I'll tell you, it's all about trying to undermine the U.S.-led order in the region, yes. right? It's about aligning with those that agree that the United States-led order in the region is not in their interest. They want to see some kind of revolutionary, violent- uh, overthrow of the U.S. By the way, it's been working, and you know they found common cause with a number of these actors. And if you look, they're gaining that control. We talked about that crescent stretching across the Middle East. And by the way, you see their presence in places. I think you mentioned, like in Bahrain, you see you know um, Iranian sort of partisans there, uh, Iran-backed partisans. Um, you see it in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. You see it. Um, like I said, in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon, they are expanding, they are growing, and they're trying to do it at, at the expense of the United States, and they're trying to do it while trying to acquire a nuclear weapon. You can see the full spectrum. I think we just, you know, over over the course of, a, you know, a fairly small amount of time, we've just kind of described that overall strategy for hegemony that the Iranians have. And, um, you know, the crazy thing is it looks like the United States is ready to say yes to this approach, right? Here, have a lot of money. Here, have, you know, a timeline for a nuke in a short amount of time. Um, and, and by the way, no, we're not going to intervene in, in Yemen. We're actually going to leave the Houthis unlisted as a terrorist organization. So, you know, go ahead, do, do what you want. I mean, you can kind of get a sense that, you know, as the United States tires of the region, 
Iran is benefiting significantly. John, I think that's an excellent um, observation and a great place to end this uh, podcast. Do you agree? Really uplifting too, right? I mean, just a a real high note. We really did end on a high note, but there's no way to discuss this topic and many of the topics we discuss without um, leading our listeners to near suicide. Um, We can be depressing at times, but look, we... uh, uh, you know, look, there was a time, John, where I was a, an eternal optimist and all this. I remember when you could fit the number of people in Washington who supported the surge in Iraq in a phone booth. And I was one of them because I, I having traveled to Iraq and embedding with the Iraqis, I understood they hated the Al Qaeda in Iraq. And there was an opportunity to work. And, and the surge did work until the rug was pulled out from under it. But, um, you know, in the Obama administration withdrew in 2011, we had a chance. We squandered it. And I think it's all been downhill from there. Um, it's it's unfortunate, but this is the the state of play. Um, we get tactical wins like the U.S. killing the um, a leader of the Islamic State just last week. That's a that's a good kill. But does it end the Islamic State? You know, we do we do small things well, but we've lost our. I, in my opinion, we've lost our will. We've um, we've lost our political will, particularly in, to to wage these wars or to oppose our enemies and adversaries and. Look, I don't think this this ends with the Middle East, with with Iran or, or in Afghanistan with the Taliban. When you're not willing to fight enemies that are committed enemies, you know what chance do we have in Ukraine? What chance would we have against a, a Chinese incursion in in uh, Taiwan? Uh, I, this is where the questions. This is what really I would say keep me keeps me awake at night. I, I realize this is all very dark and depressing. But these are the these are the concerns I have. And um, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. My advice, drink through it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, getting a little older. I can't drink like I used to. John. I mean, I can, but I think I shouldn't. <laughs> so, but ma- maybe price. I should. Maybe I should. <laughs> All right, John. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a fantastic conversation. Hey, my pleasure always. Yeah, no, it's a, it's great. We needed we needed this roundup of of what has happened on the Shia side of the aisle for the last I'd say 8 months we've been focusing primarily on the Sunni threat and specifically on Afghanistan and it is it is absolutely uh a pleasure for me to talk to something that isn't Afghanistan. Um, thank you everyone for joining us for today's episode of, uh, that's episode 60 of Generation Jihad. Uh, later this week, I'll be talking with Edmund Fitton Brown, the coordinator of the United Nations Security Council Analytical Support and Sanctions Monitoring Team. Uh, they just issued a report, a lot of good information out in there. So Edmund, who's been a, a frequent guest of this program, he's going to join us. I always look forward to speaking uh, to him. Just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Leave a positive review if you can. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.